Josh, we're going to miss you. I'm going to miss you all. Yeah, seriously. Thanks, guys. You've done great work. Thank you for sure parting. Is that, I, I'm, I'm refusing to let, accept that at this moment, I think. Don't, keep that microphone for right now, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just drag you back in. I don't want to. All right. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, people wore orange all around New Orleans this week as the city marked the annual observance of National Gun Violence Awareness Day, while a group of violence interrupters have effectively been sidelined by the Cantrell administration for the past two years. And some environmental groups are asking federal regulators to intervene with a liquid natural gas company they say is flouting law. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crostel. Hey, Nick. Hey, Kayla. Staff reporter Katie Rechtel. Hi, Katie. Hey, how are you? Good. Education reporter Marta Jusen's here. Hi, Marta. Hey, Carolyn. Environmental reporter Josh Rosenberg. Hi, Joshua. Hey, Carolyn. And special guest Ann Rolfus. She's the executive director of the Louisiana Bucket Brigade. Hi, Ann. Hi. Nick and Katie, first up with your story. This week was the annual observance of National Gun Violence Awareness Day. It happened at the same time that a team of violence interrupters who'd been working in New Orleans for a decade has seemingly been abandoned by the Cantrell administration. Can you tell us about this group, Cure Violence, which was formerly known as Cease Fire? Who were they and what did they do? Well, I mean, I remember, you know, I'm old enough that I remember covering their very first little march in Central City when they were, and they were trying to talk to people on, on the curbs and hand out information about this organization that was meant to prevent further gun violence, right? So they were trying to take that, the, the, a murder had happened the night before, and they were trying to talk to neighbors about, was there anything that was gonna happen in response? And this was a new concept and neighbors were really into it. I remember this, you know, this is how many years ago? I think 2012, 2014 is when at least it became city involved, but they may have been doing some work before then. Right. They were doing, I think that you're right, that that's exactly what they were doing. There was like a little test of it sort of before it really kicked off. Right. Um, And they were trying to find a name for it, a proper name for it. The idea, I think it makes a lot of sense. Just logically, the idea is that, people who have been through the criminal justice system, who know the streets are most able to react to things like this and go talk to people and see if they can prevent further uh, bloodshed. Nick, you really outlined this so carefully about what happened, why they were shelved, really put on the shelf starting um, two years ago. Yeah, I mean, it it was kind of a a long end confusing process in some ways that I don't think we really have all the answers to to how it happened. But um, the organization that Katie was describing was known as Ceasefire, and it, it was part of the Landry administration's uh, kind of broader murder reduction strategy called NOLA for Life. And it, re- it started in a 10 by 10 block uh, neighborhood in Central City, and they were really focused on, on that neighborhood and reducing murders there. There had been, you know, that was one of the more violent places in the city at the time. Um, and, 
you know, really claimed to have had some success there at one point during the administration. There was a, a span of 200 days without a killing. Um, and they had also expanded to include a hospital response team that would go uh, when someone was shot and would go meet with them at the hospital um, and try and figure out kind of what the situation was. And they could send people out to different parts of the city to try and, and mediate conflict and, and prevent retaliation. Um, so that's what was going on under, under the Landry administration. And, you know, it was a pretty celebrated program. People seemed to, to really like it and support it. And but one of the elements of the program and one of kind of the foundational uh, things that, that, you know, this is a national model that, that's being used. And, and one of the elements of it is that these violence interrupters, if they're going to be working with people in the streets and trying to really figure out what's going on, they can't be affiliated with law enforcement um, right. because it's it's just too likely that they could be seen as a snitch and they can't at, you know really get information like that if there's any if they're seen in any way as as possibly you know being informants. Um, so that was you know the model that was that was being used in the Lander administration, and you know Cantrell when she first came in it really seemed like she wanted to continue with it and not only continue with it, but expand it. Um, and she, she changed the name from ceasefire to cure violence, but basically said, you know, we're looking to kind of broaden the scope of this, not, not just be focused on this small, small neighborhood, but see if we can do it around the city. Um, and there were several indications that that's what they wanted to do during her first few years in office. There were, you know, this an announcement that they were changing the name from ceasefire to cure violence. There was some internal memos from her director of strategic initiatives, Josh Cox, kind of citing how important these these violence interrupters were and how how the concept of, of credible messengers, which is what Katie was talking about, people who had kind of been through the system, were to these programs. Yeah. So it really seemed like you know, outwardly that things were were not only continuing, but maybe expanding. Um, but in reality, you know, for the story, we talked to the former director of, of Cure Violence, which this became, who eventually resigned. And he said from, from the start of the administration, it was clear to him that they were kind of scaling back the program and, and looking to do something new. Um, so he said that there was that there was a direction to stop handing out kind of ceasefire information and stop canvassing neighborhoods. So there was this kind of, you know, from his perspective, um, ratcheting down of, of the program uh, during COVID, a lot of the interrupters were asked to man COVID testing sites and mm -hmm. uh, help homeless outreach, um, some of which was, you know, is understandable. That was uh, certainly needed at the time, but, you know, I think was frustrating because they also thought they needed to be doing this, this violence interruption work. And then when it really changed when the city announced the, the creation of the Office of Gun Violence Prevention, and this was in 2021, um, they brought in a director, Patrick Young, to oversee that. And they didn't in, in immediately get rid of all the violence interrupters, but what they did is they said, we're no longer going to be, um, you know, have this firewall between interrupters and police. And they also changed the, the kind of fundamental mission of the, of the program. So they were still doing these outreaches in the, they were responding to shootings at the hospital and they were um, going to homicide scenes, 
and connecting with families there. But really their main purpose was to provide resources for people with gunshot wounds or, or families of, um, of victims, not really to kind of identify what the conflict was and to, to try and do an immediate mediation. It seems like the focus, you just outlined, that the focus shifted from preventing violence to rushing in after violence and, and providing services for, for victims. And then a need, as far as the administration thought, uh, from your reporting, I think, that, that you couldn't have this firewall between law enforcement and these, these groups. I'm, I'm trying to kind of put all of this into this piece that you wrote about in the story, how it's different in New Orleans where other cities like Chicago have major gang issues. And in New Orleans, it's more personal, interpersonal relationships. Does law enforcement have a better grasp, do you think, of gang on gang activity than interpersonal stuff? Is that, a, is that one of the cruxes here? Well, I think that the decision to start working with law enforcement more frequently stemmed from kind of the, the shift in the mission. And, you know, Tamara Jackson, who was running the crisis intervention team under the Office of Gun Violence Prevention, just doesn't believe that the, the credible messenger violence interruption model works. And I think she specifically doesn't believe that it works in New Orleans, where, like you said, a lot of the violence kind of stems from maybe interpersonal disputes um, and less structured gang activity. You know, people disagree with her. Uh, and, and the you know, Calvin Pep and, and a few other violence interrupters I talked to said, no, you know, we were doing effective work and we were we had these relationships and kind of regardless of whether or not the violence was was, you know, strictly gang related, we were able to to you know anticipate these things and, and and get in front of them. So with this kind of shift in mission, where you're not actively trying to seek out conflicts or find out what's happening, it becomes much less important to have that firewall between between police mm. and 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 actually you know could be detrimental to what you're trying to do. If as as Tamara described, if you're trying to help a victim, you know, navigate the court system or try and get property back from law enforcement or things like that, having those open channels, you know, is is necessary. But, you know, it's quite different from from the work that was being done earlier. I'll be really curious to see what um, Dr. Vegno comes up with what, what, um, when she forms this new model of violence interruption. To me, just like this is just sheer opinion. But I just feel like having watched Tamar Jackson for a long time, she's really good at what she does. That social service and um, victim advocacy needed to happen. And if they can marry that with a sort of a separate street team unit that it can actually um, function on its own in, it, in the way that they want to function, I think that that would make a lot of sense. I mean, to, to be honest, it feels like there's almost like a misunderstanding of those two roles being very different. Like they can't be to get, you can't have, I'm not saying that this violence interrupter wouldn't help hook somebody up with a job or something. But I do think that when I've watched violence interruption happen, the response at the hospital or whatever, 
You have a violence interrupter coming in, maybe in a suit. He came from a family gathering. You have somebody else who's coming from across the river because they're hearing where this had happened and they're, they have knowledge of people in those areas. So they call in certain people. Those people are in the hospital. They interview the victims and their families. They talk to them. Sometimes I remember there was an issue where there was somebody actually driving around the hospital waiting for another family member to come out so they could get that person. But they heard that. So they actually would, like, they were very fast on the ground, very, they're just fast tick, fast moving people of action who are used to moving fast on words that they hear from, from like this web of people, right? Mm. This beehive of people, right? So to ask them to do paperwork outlining how they did this is their methods are very instinctual and also their literacy levels don't reflect their skill in the street. So it just, it becomes, I think, really difficult. The measurements, the the ways that they were measuring the effectiveness of violence interruption through a social work lens just was ineffective, I think. Like it just was a mismatch. Right. You also wrote in the, in the piece how they were remarking that it's very difficult to talk about the success of a program that relies on something not happening. But what the way you spoke about it just now, Katie, is really, I was thinking about it that response to victims of gun violence and and what they what they sort of have morphed it into, which is to to help victims, seems entirely divorced in my mind until you spoke of, of, with gun violence prevention. But you just married those two ideas in that in advocating for, victims and going to an incident after it's happened and meeting with a family, they can then predict what may happen in the aftermath. You just said somebody might be waiting outside of the hospital. I, I can see how they're trying to marry these two now a little bit. So it will be interesting to see what under Dr. Avegno, what it looks like. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, tomorrow would argue probably that the services provided to to victims and their families that kind of that foundational stability is an important you know violence intervention um in itself and making sure that these people have resources to to mental health services to um housing to jobs that those things are kind of these these fundamental things that that the city can provide that will ultimately have have an impact on on retaliatory violence and violence in general um, but, you know, as, as we said, it's quite different from the, the violence interventions that were being done uh, prior to the Office of Gun Violence Prevention. Do you right. know if uh, whatever morphs out of the, the new Office of Gun Violence Prevention will include people like Mr. Pep or other credible messengers, or is that something they've completely set aside and, and let, left behind? I think that it likely will, although it's we don't know for sure yet. Um, so I guess right now, the Office of Gun Violence Prevention has pretty much ceased all operations, and that is in part to the lapse in, of a CEA between them and their former fiscal sponsor. Um, so the crisis intervention team that Tamara Jackson was was working with is not is not on the street right now or doing any work. And then we have another kind of large scale. Um, program that's being developed under Dr. Jennifer Avegno and the health department, which she has said will 
will have some form of of a violence interrupter model um and and violence interrupter intervention but as you said we haven't heard specifically what that model is going to look like dr vegno has in the past been um, a big proponent of ceasefire and of cure violence and has talked about the effectiveness of credible messengers I, you know i think it's likely that there will be some some form of that but i don't we'll see what it, it exactly looks like what i think nick outlined really carefully with the with the public records that he'd done and what uh, interviews he'd done it was just that that the violence interrupters were shelved we just don't know why hmm I mean, Tamara Jackson is the most outspoken opponent, but she really came in after it had pretty much died, right? So she's she's an opponent, but I don't think she was the operative person that got rid of it. It seems like I get her point that, you know, if two people are p- playing pit, a game of pity pat and they one shoots the other, you can't prevent that. But I think what the instrumental moment is, is then if that guy's brother decides, listen, you killed my you killed my sister and and goes out to to commit further bloodshed that's where they can come in and start to to be effective and i th- so i think new orleans has this weird pattern of inter- interpersonal conflicts leading to violence more than other places like the department of justice found that in that big report right but i think that the retaliatory stuff stems from that as well right i mean that makes sense to me yeah I mean, I also think that, you know, part of the broader context here is, you know, first of all, Cantrell came in kind of urging this public health approach to to violence and came in at a time when violence was, was quite low relative to previous mm-hmm. years and relative to now. Um, and so as violence has, has really risen over the, the last several years, while we've seen this kind of major investment in the police force that has, you know, declining numbers, trouble keeping uh, officers, trouble recruiting officers. We've seen tens of millions of dollars put into efforts to to kind of uh, bulk up the police force. And at the same time, you know, we've seen these programs kind of get totally neglected with the Office of Gun Violence Prevention. It was part of it was was this CEA lapsing. Um, But whether or not more administrative attention, more money um, would have been able to kind of prevent that from happening and whether or not there was kind of a real conscious decision to move away from the violence interrupter program or whether or not it was just kind of, you know, as, as Katie said, sort of uh, abandoned by neglect. I think seeing those two things and, and you can kind of see where the administration's real priorities were here. Um, we're talking on June 1st, so we're nearly halfway through 2023. Track the curve for us of um, gun violence in New Orleans in 2023. So I think, according to some data that Jeff Asher recently shared on, on Twitter, he's the city council kind of crime analyst, we're slightly down in terms of, of murders from year to date from last year. But still much higher than um last year was the highest in in decades and so we're still quite high what jeff said is there there have been uh 22 murders in new orleans in may and 102 so far in 2023 um so that's down 11 percent relative to, to last year year to date 
but it's the second most through May since Katrina um, and the 15th most through May ever recorded. So still lots and lots of violence. Okay. It's a wonderful story. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, staff reporter Katie Rechtel, education reporter Marta Jusen, environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg, and Ann Rolfus, the director of the Louisiana Bucket Brigade, whose mission is to support communities whose health and homes are devastated by the petrochemical industry. Hi, I'm Karen Gadbois, the co-founder and executive director of The Lens. The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom, dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. As an advocate for openness, we provide readers with the source documents used in our reporting, inviting them to check and challenge our work or to build on it through their own research. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. Josh, several groups, including the Bucket Brigade of Louisiana, are asking for federal help to stop a Virginia-based LNG company from continuing to violate its pollutant permitting allowances, which they say it's done over 2,000 times since it began operations. Uh, would you set the stage for us? What is liquid natural gas? How is it made? You know, just just to kind of poke at this a little bit, it's an accomplishment from the industry that we even refer to it as natural gas. That has a certain maybe emotional fabric to it um, where it's it's easy to, to, to say it without wincing, um, hmm. but it's actually... Um, mostly methane. And and that, you know, that has a different flavor to it. It has a different taste to it. Because methane, uh, I, I think people, when they hear that, it, it might do something, it might sound differently to them. And, and there's, I mean, that's because methane is uh, recognized as a really potent greenhouse gas that is um, actually more effective than carbon dioxide in trapping heat in the atmosphere in the short term. I think it's like a 20 year window where it's, it, it actually traps more heat than does carbon dioxide. Mm. So, you know, basically from a, whatever, 30,000 foot view, we've been in this country, um, relying on this energy source for our domestic purposes. Uh, for some time now. An important point here is that calling it what the industry calls it, which is natural gas, is is a result of decades of, of very savvy marketing. Mm. That's true. It makes believe this stuff is good, when in fact it's highly flammable and it's destroying our planet. Yes. We've been using it domestically. Um, the, the, the whole idea of LNG, though, is that, you know, Maybe there's a way to to ship this stuff across the world, and and to do that takes takes a lot of energy. Uh, it's 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 not an easy thing to do um, because you have to pressurize it, 
and you've got to you've got to liquefy it. You got to get it super super cool to um, negative two hundred sixty degrees Fahrenheit, hmm. and then you can then you can put it on these tankers and send it, you know, across the world. You know, we we've heard about how with uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine that there's this demand in in Europe. Um, the facts on the ground actually don't really support that. Uh, more, more, and more. Um, Europe's actually probably fine at this point, as as far as I can tell. That's what the data is indicating. And and a lot of these export terminals and these companies are are signing contracts with Asia. Actually, that's that's where a lot of this energy is going. Um, so so I mean, in in kind of a nutshell, uh, that's that's the essence of this is that these companies want to ship this for you know, profit abroad, and, and that has, you know, the um, effect of, I don't want to say disrupting necessarily, but affecting the domestic market and, and making it more expensive here. Um, and, and they, you know, they like to uh, advertise it as a, quote, bridge energy. Um, right. But like I was saying before, the the impacts on the environment are are not negligible. Okay, well, let me let me ask this, just as a, a layperson who knows nothing. LNG um, is is being produced by this company, Venture Global. Go back to, to when they um, considered this uh, project. They applied to Louisiana, to the Department of, of Energy Permitting in Louisiana to, to start up this operation. And the, the, um, the permit is given, and it's, yes, however, you have to stay within these prescribed guidelines. Is that basically true? Yeah, that's, that's right. It was, um, for, first of all, this is a facility like this um, kind of cuts across different regulatory bodies at the, the state and, and federal level. So the Federal uh, Energy Re- Regulatory um, Commission FERC uh, approved this project. And, and the EPA? Is the EPA involved in that permitting? In in, in permitting uh, for air quality? Air, okay. Um, I'm getting the thumbs up. Well, um, they, they are to the extent that they have delegated the program to the state. Uh, the state of Louisiana is really the one making the decision. Okay. But it's supposed to be under the guidance and while following the rules as laid out in, by the Environmental Protection Agency. Okay. And now, really, the, the crux of the story here is that you found that this organization, Venture Capital, has w- received venture, these uh, permits. Sorry, sorry uh, venture, venture Global, Global right. Global. Received this, this permit to do this work and now is trying to change the rules, basically, because they've, they've been violating repeatedly to the, to the tune of, over 2,000 times, they've exceeded the limits prescribed by the law. How did you find out about this? And they're, I guess, you know, the real, the real kicker here is they're, they're saying, yeah, but can you just change the rules for us? How did this come yeah. to be? Yeah, the power of this information is that it comes from the company Venture Global itself. And for the purposes of this conversation, if you don't mind, I'm going to refer to them as Vulture Global. <laughs> because that is extremely accurate. I, I can't possibly express enough how predatory this company is being 
on the state of Louisiana. I think they've made a business decision to, to survey the landscape and see that our Department of Environmental Quality rubber stamps basically whatever polluters want to do. And so Vulture Global has swooped in and this is what they've done. According to their own reports to the state of Louisiana, they violated their permits to operate over 2,000 times in their first year of operation. 2022 was the first year that, that Vulture Global got up and running in Cameron Parish, and they had all sorts of problems in that first year. And what you see when you look through their, their reports to the state is that they have problems with all kinds of equipment. It's not as if it's just the right tire or the left tire or the, the oil pan or the engine now, it's all of it. So within this one facility, there were seven 17 different pieces of equipment that were having problems. And I could go on and on, but I'll stop there. Mm. But it, it, they, they've got all kinds of, they've got just terrible problems all over the facility. And, and I will say that's a bit unusual in my experience. Usually when you look at a facility, you can trace a lot of the problems back to a single unit, not in this case. They've got they've got problems everywhere. So something you said was very interesting to me because I I started to think about the old adage of uh, it's easier to beg for forgiveness than to ask for permission, but they're not even doing that. They're not even begging for forgiveness. It's really just this business practice to to be and because here's this is where I wanted to go with that. Um, you said they looked at the landscape and and looked at the i guess lack of of regulation and lack of um enforcement and realized that they could just do whatever they wanted what's happened in this situation is that vulture global has been violating its permits and and instead of correcting the problem they actually write to the state and you can see this on a letter that they wrote on february 5th of, of 2022 they're saying, we're having a terrible problem with our hot oil heaters. It's actually a design flaw that we can't fix. Now, in most situations, you would then say, but we're going to get to the bottom of it. We're, we're going to solve it. Hang on. We're, we're rolling up our sleeves. In this case, they go on to say that they can't fix it. It's, it's a design flaw. The manufacturer has to, has to fix it. And then what is subsequently very clear is that they just keep on operating even with this major design flaw. So there are two things that happen. One is they, three things, they realize they have problems. They then decide to just keep on operating and sending the pollution out onto all of us who live here. But then the third thing they do is they then say to the state of Louisiana, by the way, please just excuse those problems, act as if they don't ha haven't ever happened, and instead raise our permit limits. The best analogy is that if you get pulled over for speeding at 80 miles an hour in a 60 mile per hour zone, and you say to the police officer, oh, you know, please just raise the speed limit to 80 miles per hour. Right. Now, let me ask you a question about that. Are they asking for that speed limit to be raised to 80 miles an hour for everyone or just for them from now on? They're not only asking that be there. This is just for them, right? They're okay. just, this is, these are permits really specific to this facility. Okay. So all they can do is ask for themselves. But what's important is they're not only asking that it be raised uh, to 80 miles an hour. They're ask, actually asking it to be raised to 150 miles an hour, right. right? They want not only to have their past mistakes excused, but they want 
room for even more mistakes in the future. The entire rule book to basically be thrown out just on behalf of them. To be, to be thrown out, written in pencil, to be retrieved and rewritten whenever they want. You know, as if that weren't problematic enough. Even more problematic is the fact that the state of Louisiana, if not pressured, will absolutely let them do what they mm, want. Okay. All right. I want to come this back is to done again and again and again, up and down the Mississippi River. Okay. I want to come back to that. Um, however, what I want to you to outline right now is is what what do the relaxed standards for this company in particular mean to the environment, to the health of the residents? What, literally, what happens? Well, there are a couple of things that happen. One is more pollution is dumped on all of us. So if granted, and again, it's likely that they will get these approvals, they would be dumping over 200 tons per year only of hazardous air pollutants and a certain type of toxic pollutant. That doesn't include a whole other category of, of stuff that they want to put out, but that gives you a sense of the volume. We're talking 200 ton level of pollution. So there's that. There's so much more to say about the chemicals that also warm our planet and are making storms in that very part of the state much worse. The other effect here is what it's doing to the shrimpers in that area and mm. to the fishermen. Mm. Cameron Parish is a really, really important part of Louisiana as far as seafood is concerned, and as far as the culture around that seafood. But when you go to Cameron Parish and you talk to the, to the shrimpers there, they'll tell you, it's over for us. If these gas export industries have their way, the fishing industry in Cameron Parish, as we know it, will be over. Okay, could we talk now about the response from the uh, licensing agencies, the permitting agencies? And you, you sort of resignedly said it, it seems like it's probably a done deal um, that they'll they'll probably get the pass what can be done I think it's very important to clarify that if if there is no outside pressure the Department of Environmental Quality would rubber stamp these requests and when I say if I mean that in a giant capital letter hundred foot font bold underscored because we are raising an alarm about this by no means do I just throw up my hands in resignation on this. This is why we're doing this work, to make sure that our Department of Environmental Quality is not allowed to just give the rubber stamp that they would love to give. And so what, you know, if we don't go and look at these records, nobody knows any of this. So the first thing we've done is looked at these records. Again, this is Vulture Global's own information. We've dragged them into the light of day and basically circled things in red ink. We didn't have to do, you know, original research or piece anything together. It's all right there in black and white. So we've done that. We've sent the information to the Environmental Protection Agency, and we've shouted, "Look, look what what tragedy is going to happen in our state if you guys don't step in and and protect us." Parish presidents, state representatives, U.S. representatives, any help at all from any elected officials? Clay Higgins is the congressman from that part of the world, and, and that's a problem. Uh, and the police jury, which is the local governing body, has unfortunately done what so many local governing bodies do, which is to give way to industry. You know, that could be a whole other podcast about why that happens. Jobs. But uh, yeah, right now it's the, you can say it's the, it's the fishermen and a wonderful retired oil and gas man who live right next door to the proposed 
to the site uh, who are who are standing up and, and saying enough. I think it's really important to look look at who is standing up, fishermen and re, and a retired oil and gas engineer. Right? These are not what people like to refer to as environmentalists. Hmm. These are people who make up the heart and soul of Louisiana's culture. You know, saying enough is enough. What other organizations have joined your efforts? We sent a letter to the Environmental Protection Agency asking that they make sure that Vulture Global's permit increases are not approved. On that letter is a group called FISH, which is Fishermen Invested in Saving Our Heritage, a group called MICA 68, the Vessel Project. Those are all groups from Cameron and Calcasieu parishes who are really concerned about the survival of that region. Then there's also another group based in New Orleans, Healthy Gulf, and a group in Lake Charles called For a Better Bayou. So it's a it's a pretty wide swath of, of organizations. Um, some, some, something else just uh, came to mind uh, during that, you know, uh, just that I want to bring up as well is that you know, uh, and this goes back to the, what you asked me before, Carolyn, is that, you know, Venture Global is looking to expand. They're, they're looking to be a big player in the state and in the industry in general, writ large. So they're, they're as we speak, they're, they're building a facility down, down in uh, Plaquemines Parish called Plaquemines LNG. They want to build a site directly adjacent to that facility. Um, called Delta, and then they also want to build um, next to next to this site in the southwestern part of the state uh, with, with CP2, if, if that's right. And, and they've described the uh, Plaquemines LNG facility as being, you know, quote, technologically identical, unquote, to um, this, the, the Calcasieu Pass plant. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of... Um, you know, that seems noteworthy to, to this conversation. What do the spokespeople from Venture Global say, if anything, to, to your queries about this? Nothing to me, for whatever reason. Um, you know, I'll, I'll leave that to them to, to say why or why not. They haven't responded. But uh, they, they I, I did notice in, in a different article reported by The Advocate, they, they were saying that, we're working to mitigate these, um, you know, deviations of, you know, of, of these uh, emission uh, allowances. And my personal kind of knee-jerk response on this for whatever that's worth, uh, I'm not sure this really uh, passes muster, but but they were saying that, you know, these, uh, you know, viol- violations, I don't think they use that word, but these deviations like are, aren't from an aggregate sense, like, you know what I mean? Like it's, it, um, this, this, this may have gone over a line here and there, but if you look at it from an, an aggregate universal perspective, then we're, we're not out of compliance essentially, but mm. I don't know. I mean, that it kind of strange credulity when, when they're asking the the state to, you know, increase their, their allowances at the same time, you know? But they had, from what I've read, they've had a very, very careful wordsmithing. Mm-hmm. So they'll, they'll say something like, our load, this isn't exactly, but it's this idea, our loading operations have proceeded without fail, which is not at all what we're talking about. So mm-hmm. they've, mm-hmm. they've given an answer about something, something wholly different right. when, 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 when pressed by journalists. And, and once again, it's really manipulative. And 
I think, you know, it's really important for people in Louisiana to know who's behind this. And, and we're focusing on Vulture Global because, as Josh said, they have these aspirations to dominate the Louisiana coast and to transform it. It's a radical plan to, to industrialize the coast of Louisiana. And who are these guys? They're based in the Northeast. I met one of their vice presidents who comes down here, hand on his beard, looking into your eyes, saying, you know, how much he loves to hunt. And he, he cares so much for the planet. And it's not just that one guy, you know, they've got a whole team of executives who have looked at Louisiana and made a calculation that this is a place that they can destroy. Mm. And the problem is that nobody knows it. You go on the streets of New Orleans and ask people, do you realize that in Plaquemines Parish, Vulture Global has plans to build two facilities larger than football stadiums, bigger than the Superdomes by multiple times. Do you realize they have a plan to build that on our fragile coastline? 9.5 out of 10 people will have no idea. And that's why the reporting actually is so important. And Anne, you've been doing this type of work for a long time. Where does this one rank as far as um, keeping you up at night. Rate this one for me. Well, this is my my current passion project, I would say. I mean, that's what usually happens, whether it's the Bayou Bridge Pipeline or or Shell or Formosa Plastics. We, we get our, we sink our teeth into one of them. And this is it at the moment. It, it's Vulture Global. And I would say that I've never seen a company with such massive targets on our state. You know, it's one thing to have, as Formosa Plastics did, the largest plastics plant in the world or in North America. They wanted to have the largest of its kind in North America. And now you, but, but these guys want to put four places, each much larger than the Superdome, on our coast. If there's one environmental ethic that, that people in this part of the world have, it's that our coast is important. And yet, while nobody's looking, our local and state officials are greenlighting a radical transformation of that coast. What's really interesting is that even people, whether it be in Plaquemines Parish or in Cameron Parish or Calcasieu, even people who have worked for the industry, who maybe still have pensions or are getting a paycheck from the industry, even they look at this radical plan to transform our coast and say, oh, that's too much. We have enough. And, and that particular phrase, we have enough, is something that I've heard come from people's lips time and again that, okay, you know, even people who may think the industry has been a, has been a benign presence, even they can say, oh, wait a minute, now we're going a little bit too far to put these enormous export facilities on our coast in an area, for example, in Plaquemines Parish that has already been underwater. The storms in 2021, aerial photographs show Vulture Global's site in Plaquemines Parish underwater. And yet they want to put a highly flammable, volatile facility there. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll be watching. Thanks for your time today. Yeah, thank you for letting me talk about my current most favorite subject. <laughs> we appreciate it. All right, thanks, Josh. All right. Thank you. Thank, thank, thank you, Anne, for joining us. Yeah, today. no, thanks for inviting me. I'm, I'm honored. Okay. I, love, I love this podcast. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Nick Krastel, Katie Rechtal, Marta Jusen, Joshua Rosenberg, 
and Ann Rolfus, the director of the Louisiana Bucket Brigade, whose mission is to support communities whose health and homes are devastated by the petrochemical industry. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.